We took a bad economy that was falling and turned it around. Trump took a good economy and drove it back into the ditch. Through his failure to get COVID under control, his failure to deliver real relief to working people. Does he not understand and see the tens of millions of people who've had to file for unemployment this year so far? The people who lost wages or the cost of groceries have gone up dramatically? Donald Trump has been almost singularly focused on the stock market, the Dow and NASDAQ. Not you, not your families. My plan will help create at least 5 million new, good-paying jobs and create them right here in the United States of America. Let's use this opportunity to take bold investments in American industry and innovation so the future is made in America. I'll be laser-focused on working families. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Tuesday, October the 27th, 2020. On this edition of The Politocrat, the United States Supreme Court, the election, and journalism, and how it has failed in one instance among many, specifically on 60 Minutes, this past Sunday, and Nora O'Donnell's interview of Senator Kamala Harris. That and more coming up next. Things are taken away by a far-right majority on the Supreme Court and history will record that by brute political force, in contradiction to its stated principles, this Republican majority confirmed a lifetime appointment on the eve of an election. A justice who will alter the lives and freedoms of the American people while they stood in line to vote. Leader McConnell has lectured the Senate before on consequences of a majority's action. You'll regret this, he told Democrats once, and you may regret it this a lot sooner than you think. Listen to those words. You'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. I would change just one word. My colleagues may regret this for a lot longer than they think. Here, at this late hour, at the end of this sordid chapter in the history of the Senate, the history of the Supreme Court, my deepest and greatest sadness is for the American people. Generations yet unborn will suffer the consequences of this nomination. As the globe gets warmer, as workers continue to fall behind, as unlimited dark money floods our politics, as reactionary state legislatures curtail a woman's right to choose, gerrymander districts, and limit the rights of minorities to vote, my deepest, greatest, and most abiding sadness tonight is for the American people and what this nomination will mean for their lives 
their freedoms, their fundamental rights. Monday, October 26th, 2020, it will go down as one of the darkest days in the 231-year history of the United States Senate. I yield the floor. Are there any senators in the chamber who wish to vote or change their vote? If not, on this vote, the yeas are 52, the nays are 48, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. Those words you just heard were those of Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator from Iowa, who you could hear the lilt in his voice when he said the word confirmed. It was a celebration and you heard the applause. Before that, you heard the words of another Chuck, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic senator out of New York, who is the Senate minority leader, though I think not for long. In about a week from now, exactly a week from now, I think he's going to be the majority leader. But we'll talk about the election in a few minutes. What we saw last night was the far-right and fascist takeover of this country, almost complete, 50 years in the making, if not longer. And what you saw last night with this confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we all know it was, we all know, we all knew it was going to happen. What you saw last night was nothing less than a fascist takeover. And it's been 50 years of this, 50 years. This did not just start with Donald Trump in 2017, putting his hand on a Bible, declaring that this would be the end of American carnage. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. And of course, he meant the opposite. He meant that the American carnage would continue on. And it has. 228,000 people have died from coronavirus, thanks to Donald Trump. And now yesterday evening, as people were on the West Coast getting ready for dinner and people on the East Coast were just about getting ready, perhaps for bed. Amy Coney Barrett was being sworn in on the South Lawn at the White House. Donald Trump's third Supreme Court pick now on the court. This is a despicable day and a horrible day for this country. The court now is a six to three conservative court. It's cemented conservative court, a cemented court that's going to be that way now for the next 50 years. 
So for the large majority of your life and for the rest of your life and for many people more than half their lives, the Supreme Court of this country, the United States of America, is going to be in the hands of conservative justices. And not just conservative, but extreme right-wing conservatives. Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who does not believe in a woman's right to choose, who does not believe that the Obamacare that we have in this country should even exist anymore, she took her now colleague, Chief Justice Roberts, to task in a writing that she did a few years ago condemning his stand on preserving the Affordable Care Act, which is Obamacare. Someone who does not believe that gay people have the right to marry each other. She is now on the court. That is the reality that Americans woke up to this morning. That is the reality that we are left with. And that's why you heard the celebration. That's why you heard the cheering. That's why you heard the applause. And that's why you heard the lilt and zeal and change in pitch in Republican Senator Chuck Grassley's voice. Chuck Grassley is about 90 years of age. 9-0. He's up there. He's up there. And nearer the end than he is the beginning, like pretty much all of us, or many of us, And yet, I've never heard a man who's close to 90 or in his 90s so happy that a Supreme Court pick has been confirmed to the court. I've never heard someone so happy. And if a man who is 90 years old or close to 90 can be so happy about a Supreme Court nominee being confirmed. That spells doom for the rest of us. Amy Coney Barrett is a hatchet woman. And now as Justice Barrett, she will show you that she is a hatchet woman. You heard the speech that I played there, a portion of it, the closing minute or two, two minutes from Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic senator who sounded a very stiff, grim note of how dangerous this is. I think it was a very good speech You have to really listen to the whole thing to get the whole punch of it. But you heard those two minutes and change 
You heard those two minutes or so. And Chuck Schumer really hit the nail on the head. This is something that is going to affect generations yet unborn. And contrary to some conservatives on Twitter, this ain't just some rhetorical flourish. This really is going to happen. You are going to affect the lives of millions of women in this country, of millions of people who receive assistance thanks to the Affordable Care Act. You are going to affect many people who are gay, who want to get married. There is already a case in Minnesota that is coming before the Supreme Court in the next few weeks that deals with abortion. I can tell you that that is a fact. They are already starting. What you have now in this country and what you have had in this country for hundreds of years, quite frankly, is white male minority apartheid rule. We've seen that with the stealing of the 2016 presidential election. We've seen that with the gerrymandering and the redistricting. We've seen that in Wisconsin, especially with regard to those two things. So that even though most people in the state of Wisconsin vote Democratic in these elections, overwhelmingly so, you still have the districts redrawn to such a degree that Republicans still have control. That is white male minority rule, a.k.a. apartheid. And while apartheid is that kind of rule based on race, with the majority of people being black, functionally, it's no different here in the United States. You've got white men who are a minority in this country. They are what? less than 18%, less than 20% of the country as a group. And yet, they, the rich among them, control and rule all the apparatus in this country. The courts, the economic structures, law, War, politics, entertainment. Sports may be the only thing they don't, but ownership-wise, white men do. And so none of that has changed in all of these hundreds of years. And we are living in a regime of patriarchy That continues on to this very day. We've been living in that for hundreds of years. And what we saw last night was another rubber stamping of the patriarchy. That's what we saw last night with this confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. And just because Amy Coney Barrett is a woman, that does not mean that the patriarchy is not alive and well. 
Trust me, she's there to do the patriarchy's bidding. Not just the far right's bidding, as odious as that is. She is there to do the bidding of the patriarchy. White male patriarchy. And trust me, she's not going to recuse herself from any kind of election matter that comes up, should it come up, hopefully it won't, but should it come up next week or thereafter, she's not going to recuse herself. That's just not going to happen. Presidential historians can say what they want, Michael Michael Beschloss, but the reality is that that is not going to happen. This is why she was rammed through in the first place. This is a very clear, clear attempt to keep the white male patriarchy in this country alive. And using a woman to do it is the very proof that that patriarchy is still alive and well and in full throttle mode. That is what is going on. And it was all a front. I told you last week or the week before when she was being given the hearing in the Senate before the Judiciary Committee, I told you this was all a front she presented. Oh, my kids and oh, I've got these two black kids that I adopted and I've got a child with Down syndrome and I've got my lovely kids, you know, all my kids are wonderful. This was a smokescreen based on the optics. She's got a child with disabilities. She's got a two black kids that she's adopted and she's got the rest of her kids as she calls them her lovely kids, her kids. So, oh, a person who has two black children she's adopted and a person who has a child with Down syndrome. She cannot be that bad. Oh, no. Amy Coney Barrett just couldn't possibly be that bad. After all, look at her children. All optics, everybody. All optics. It's not what they say. And it's not what they present. It is what they do. And there is no accident that Justice Clarence Thomas was the very person who swore in, unofficially, no less, but swore in Judge Amy Coney Barrett last night on the South Lawn at the White House with Donald Trump standing there preening and scowling at the same time, it seemed. No accident that he was the one who swore her in. Both of them, it should be pointed out, because it really was not pointed out in any coverage I saw last night. Both of them were were confirmed in the Senate with the narrowest confirmation majority in the history of the United States. Both of them were confirmed 52 to 48. 
Both of them. That is the narrowest margin for a confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court in the history of this country. Only one Republican crossed over to join the 47 Democrats. And that one Republican, as you might have guessed by now, in case you didn't know, was Republican Senator Susan Collins out of Maine. A week from now, the voters will have voted her out. They're going to do that. And this, for Susan Collins, was a last gasp attempt to gain some currency with the voters in Maine. And that currency has almost evaporated over the last three years or four years or six years. Sarah Gideon is going to become the next senator of Maine. The Democrat will become the next senator of Maine. That is one I will guarantee you. The only reason that Susan Collins crossed over, apart from obviously wanting to make a last ditch effort of pretense that she cared about the voters in the state of Maine, who she has been the senator of for what 20 years or so now plus, is because the outcome was already stenciled in and it was never in doubt. She probably told Mitch McConnell, this is how these things work. Mitch McConnell and her got together. She told him, you know, Mitch, I'm going to, Moscow Mitch, I'm going to do what I have to do here because my seat is under threat and I need to vote the other way to curry favor with the constituents in the state of Maine. And Moscow Mitch probably said to her, okay, Susan. And that's exactly what happened. He knew he had the votes. When it was clear that Lisa Mikowski, who was not running for re-election, was going to vote yes, a few weeks after she said, well, I don't believe we should be voting for a Supreme Court nominee during an election season. We shouldn't be doing that. And even in the first instance when she said that she never said that she wouldn't vote she just said that she wouldn't that she wouldn't vote yes i should say she just said that she wouldn't vote during that time didn't mean that she said that she wouldn't vote yes she just said she wouldn't vote now but of course when it was clear that the votes were there for justice barrett she turned around and did not even stick to principle. Surprise, surprise. Mikowski decided, well, what the heck? I'm going to vote for her anyway. Just two weeks after or three weeks after, I said I wouldn't. This is really despicable stuff, but this is the dirty politics and the country hardball politics that you find in Washington, D.C. This is what it is. And it's proof that elections have consequences. And that 
parties have votes. And this was done because the Republicans control the U.S. Senate. If the Republicans had not controlled the U.S. Senate, which means that if voters did not vote for Republicans, which also means that if voters didn't stay home during these midterm elections or off-year elections or in last time's general election from 2016, we wouldn't have an Amy Coney Barrett on the bench and we probably would not have had either Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh on the bench. Elections really do have consequences. And your vote counts. Votes count. You clearly saw that last night. That votes count. There's going to be talk, of course, of adding additional judges to the Supreme Court, additional justices, should the Democrats get into the White House and get the Senate next week. That talk is going to continue. I do think that that is a wise idea, given what we've seen here by the Republicans over these last three, four years, not allowing Merrick Garland a hearing, blocking the federal judges of Obama, especially the last two years. There's nothing about this that is illegal, but it is unconstitutional what Mitch McConnell did, did not fulfill his Article 1 duty by advice and consent of a president's nominated pick. He didn't do that with Merrick Garland. He left that seat open. And that's the dirty game. There's nothing illegal about it. It's a dirty game. And the Democrats have got to stop worrying about, oh, and I've heard this from some pundits. Oh, well, my goodness, you know, if Joe Biden gets in and oh my gosh, and they pack the court, pack the court. And they add people to the court. I mean, who's packed the court these last four years? Three stolen Supreme Court seats? And you're talking about packing a court? I mean, this is the, see, this is the language that you have to unpack. Speaking of packing something. You got one justice that was put there because Mitch McConnell blocked Obama's pick Merrick Garland. You had a second one there who came in because Anthony Kennedy, who was seen as a more centrist to right kind of judge, was bribed, basically, to quit and retire. You know, you had Ivanka Trump go up there with her two kids and charm him and bribe him. God knows what was offered for that, what was offered in that bribe. Money, lots of it. Education for Judge Justice Kennedy's kids or whatever. I don't know if he has children or not. Or his family, whatever was promised. Right. To get him to retire, he retires. And then you've got someone accused of sexual assault. He gets on the Supreme Court. That's Brett Kavanaugh. And now you've got not even a month ago now. 
Not even a month ago. Well, actually a month ago. Just over a month ago. Ruth Bader Ginsburg perished. She died. She passed. I believe it was September the uh, 18th or 19th. September the 18th. Whatever it was. I believe it was September the 18th of this year. She passed away. That's just over a month ago. That's just over five weeks ago now. And they couldn't wait until she was buried before... In fact, Mitch McConnell couldn't wait an hour and a half before declaring, oh, we're going to go after this seat. We're going to put someone in. Ram through Amy Coney Barrett, the very polar opposite of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was challenging the patriarchy, chipping away at it with the kinds of advocacy and the work she was doing, and the jurisprudence that she authored. And now you've got someone in there who has absolutely turned that on its head and will do so. Who's packing a court with those three picks that are now sitting there for life? For life. I know, you know, there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to this stuff. And then they realize, you know, when there's something they can't do. What, I can't? I can't do that? That's how most Americans, I think, or how a number of Americans, you know, realize when it slaps them right in their face. Oh, really? I can't do that? What? You can't do that? Really? I mean, that's how the average American, I think, finds out what the ramifications of these decisions are. Because after all, who watches C-SPAN? Except me and maybe a few of you. You know? And some of the other people who watch it. I mean, who, who really watches that channel? I mean, this is just... Look, the Democrats now should not be afraid of this idea of adding justices to the court. You cannot have an ideological tilt so far off now to the point in which everything is going to be decided strictly on ideological lines. That is not how you run a country. That is not how the Supreme Court should ever be. Tom Hartman wrote a book about this, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. And that is exactly what happened last night with this Amy Coney Barrett confirmation. America was betrayed and not for the first time. Voters, it's time to know your rights. Know that history is on your side. History has given you the right to vote. Voters, see yourself during the most important election of our time. See yourself casting your ballot and not letting anyone or anything stand in your way. See yourself as the voter with the most powerful voice, the voice of the disabled voter, the voice of the young first-time voter. Will you 
the voice of an experienced senior citizen, the voice that is black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, the voter that is straight, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, non-binary. You are the American voter who cannot be suppressed. Voters, it's time that you know casting your ballot isn't difficult at all. You just have to know your rights. Voters, you have the right to a free and fair election. That's why our voice will not be suppressed. Your vote is your voice. Call or text 866-OUR-VOTE for more information on your voting rights. Seven Days. That was Sting with Seven Days from his album Ten Summoners Tales. And we are exactly seven days away from the end of this election. This election, which began on September the 4th, 2020, in terms of the voting, began on September the 4th with North Carolina and absentee ballots will end next week, a week from today, on November the 3rd, 2020, the final day of voting. It's incredible that we are almost at the finish line. With seven days to go, with one week left of voting, the United States Elections Project has put out some numbers that I think are staggering. According to the U.S. Elections Project, as of the time I'm recording this, 66,377,711 people have voted in the United States already. That number of over 66 million people is already higher than the total number of votes 
that either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton got in the 2016 presidential election. That 66.3 million number is more than half of the total number of people who voted for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. That is an astonishing, record-breaking, early vote number. Never before in the history of this country have we had this many people voting before the end of an election. That number will obviously travel higher by the time you get to listen to this episode. That number will have gone past 70 million people, most likely. And by the time we get to next week, when we get to Monday of next week, there is a really good chance that the number could be past 90 million voters. And if that number gets to around 90 million, nine zero million, this is going to be a landslide for the Democrats, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, for the Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the House, and in the state houses across the country. The state legislature, which is very, very important in your state, the state legislature, critical. Your mayor, your governor, your city council member, your assembly person. Because what we are seeing now, and granted, not every one of these people is voting for a Democrat. But what we are seeing right now are the conditions are precisely the conditions that are needed for a so-called blue wave. Democrats win elections when the turnout is high. When people stay home, as they did four years ago, when people vote third party, as a lot of people did four years ago, when people write in candidates, as a fair measure of people did four years ago, the Republicans win those kinds of elections. Don't get me wrong, there's still a long way to go. Seven days is going to feel like seven years. This next week will feel like it's seven years long. You're going to hear more stories of chicanery and voter suppression by the Republicans. You're going to hear those stories. The Supreme Court, speaking of which, before Amy Coney Barrett was put on it and confirmed, ruled five to three in favor of the Wisconsin State Legislature and said that the 
Wisconsin courts, the Wisconsin apparatus couldn't count its own votes. I mean, the Republicans who brought this suit said that, you know, the Supreme Court supported them, said that we we don't want Wisconsin to count these votes. These mailed ballots, these mail-in ballots that come in after election day, after the last day of voting, which is next Tuesday, a week from today. If there's any mail-in ballots that come in after election day, no matter when they're postmarked, even if they're postmarked before election day, which is what I think Wisconsin requires, we're not counting them. And the U.S. Supreme Court said they agree. No, we're not going to count them. Wisconsin, you can't count your own votes. This is absolutely Bush v. Gore part two. And Brett Kavanaugh even invoked Bush v. Gore, which was supposedly a one-time only decision 20 years ago. Now, it's very different because in different states, there are different things. The Supreme Court, the very same Supreme Court, ruled in favor of Pennsylvania, a Pennsylvania state court order extending the absentee ballot deadline in Pennsylvania. Yeah, we rule, and it was a 4-4 ruling, by the way. So when it's a tie, the lower court decision is law and it stands. Now with Amy Coney Barrett now on that court, that ruling will not stand. That would be overturned and Pennsylvania voters wouldn't have that chance. This is what having Amy Coney Barrett on the court means now. But yesterday's decision by the U.S. Supreme Court was nothing short of an atrocity, as was that confirmation vote, rammed through in less than 40 days after one of the greatest judicial pioneers we've had in this country passed away. You had someone like this rammed through like a battering ram. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett yeah, you know, we'll ram her through, but we won't ram through a stimulus package for you, everyday American. We won't ram through election protection so that your elections are safe and secure and the infrastructure is stronger. And so you're not on a blooming line for 15 hours waiting. We won't do that. We won't deal with hunger in this country with millions of people on food bank lines waiting in their cars or standing on the street for hours. We won't deal with any of that. But what we will do is ram through a judge who believes in taking away all of those things that you now take for granted. The right to marry, the right to choose, and that's being whittled away as it is, Access to health care, having health care in the Affordable Care Act, 
I know it's got to be improved. I get that. I'm for Medicare for all as well. But the Affordable Care Act has helped millions of people. Millions of them. And that cannot be denied. This is really evil. And this is why we've still got so much work to do in these final seven days of voting. If you have already voted, now, now, now is the time to get phone banking, to call your friends as well, to call family members, call the roll, go down the line, look at your address book, look at the people in it that you know, and remind them to vote or ask them, have you voted yet? Are you registered? In Pennsylvania, today is the last day to vote in person. So if you're in Pennsylvania right now, Tuesday, October 27th, that's today, is your final day to vote in person on an early basis. Your final day to do that. Pennsylvania obviously is going to be a very important state. So last week's U.S. Supreme Court decision was very important. Wisconsin is obviously going to be a very important state. So last night's Supreme Court decision was very important and detrimental to this whole notion of states' rights. That the Federalist Society, which is not some innocent little happy-go-lucky country club. This is where all the dark money is. This is where in dark money, you know, that's what Jane Mayer wrote about. M-A-Y-E-R, Jane Mayer, wrote a great book called Dark Money, talking about where these right-wingers and conservatives get all their money. Who's funding them? Who's funding these politicians? Who's funding these think tanks? Where this money's coming from? And it's a really disturbing read at times, but it's a necessary read. The Federalist Society is pumped full of this kind of dark money. And these guys are the ones who bring forth an Amy Coney Barrett. They've been wanting to get her on the court for years. This wasn't just some pick that just was there. They were talking about her when Kavanaugh was being considered. And even before Kavanaugh, she was being looked at. With Gorsuch. States' rights. You know, the Federalist Society is, oh, states' rights. And they've trampled on states' rights. And the U.S. Supreme Court has trampled on them. I mean, if you don't think that Bush v. Gore was an example of trampling on states' rights, a federal branch of government was doing that? If you don't think that that was an example of the judiciary of the United States Supreme Court being the judiciary in the federal branches of government, and you don't think that that Bush v. Gore decision was a trampling of Florida's state rights, the state's rights to count the votes in their own state, If you don't think that that was a trampling of states' rights, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. That's exactly what it was. And you saw a repeat 
of it last night with this Wisconsin decision. I believe the case is called DNC versus Washington State, excuse me, DNC versus Wisconsin State Legislature. This was a hideous Supreme Court decision. But what we've got to do now, obviously, be angry about this, tweet angry, communicate on whatever social media platform you do, your displeasure with all of this. I mean, the Democrats tried all they could to slow this down, but they were never going to win this battle. Because, why? They didn't have the votes. They didn't have the numbers. Power. And we have to give the right people power. Simple as that. I think the American voter is getting that message today and has been getting it since September 4th where people have just said, you know what? There is no chance, no chance I'm going to be sitting home. People are motivated to vote. It's now up to 66,461,363 people who have voted already according to US elections project and it is a 2 to 1 in favor of mail in ballots you can bet that Donald Trump is going to be challenging that but let him challenge it let him challenge it you go out there and do your job and vote 44 million mail in ballots 22 million in-person votes makes up that 66 million plus number. These people do not want democracy. They're challenging every single little thing, everything they're challenging. They don't want you to vote. I mean, I told you this yesterday. You heard the audio from Paul Weyrich. They don't want you to vote. He even says he doesn't want you to vote. We have a job to do these next seven days. We need to phone bank. We need to text. We need to do a roll call in our address books to all the people we know. Friends, obviously family. Ask everyone you know, have you voted yet? Are you registered? And if they say no, tell them how important it is right now to be registered and how important it is right now to vote. Because, you know, registration deadlines have been fast approaching in some of these states. Now, there are a lot of states where you can register and vote on the same day. Meaning on election day, you can in some states. In California, you can do that. But look, what you want to do right now is bank these votes. And as I keep saying, if we turn out in droves, and we vote early in droves, and we have this record-breaking turnout, we will win this election. It will be Operation Landslide coming to full fruition. And what you are seeing right now in the United States of America is precisely that. While I do not know, and you do not know, exactly who has voted for whom, 
What I do know is, is that this kind of record-breaking turnout certainly favors and tilts toward the Democratic Party. When John Lewis said, vote like you've never, ever voted before, the American people listened. And with one week to go, one week to go, I'm pretty darn confident that John Lewis is smiling from up above. Exactly two years ago today, on Saturday, October the 27th, 2018, a white racist who was armed to the gills, armed to the teeth, entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and shot and killed at least 12, if not more, at least 12 people who were Jewish, who were at the synagogue. That hate crime, that atrocity was unspeakable. And Donald Trump said very little about it of any consequence. Apart from, well, you know, if they had if they had a security guard that was armed and this kind of thing wouldn't have happened. Despicable. The act itself was evil, violent, hateful, and cowardly. And I just want to take this moment to remember those people who perished in a cowardly act of white terrorism. May we never forget the individuals who were killed and on this particularly difficult day for their families send their families the support, the love and the good wishes for their safety and their strength. My deepest condolences go to the families of the victims of that terrorist attack. The mass murder at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, exactly two years ago today. May all of the individuals who were killed and those affected, may they rest in peace and may those affected continue on despite these difficult days. Next, Nora O'Donnell and the disgrace of so-called journalism by her during 60 Minutes this past Sunday. This year's election is 
is going to be a little different. Instead of one election day, we now have a voting season. That special time of year when polls can open weeks before election day. When your mailbox can become a voting booth. When how you vote is just as important as who you vote for. How, when, and where to cast your ballot depends on your state. Tis the season to be prepared. This year, plan your vote. Welcome back. On 60 Minutes this past Sunday, and you heard a brief clip there. CBS News anchor, CBS Evening News anchor, Nora O'Donnell, disgraced herself and her profession in an interview with Senator Kamala Harris, who is the vice presidential nominee with Joe Biden, of course, on their ticket. Hopefully she will be the vice president-elect within the next week or so. But this interview that aired on Sunday, just two days ago now, was a disgrace. Nora O'Donnell disgraced herself and should really be cast out of doing any of these types of interviews. It's true that 60 Minutes is not what it once was. It is not what it used to be. In the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and even into the 90s, 60 Minutes was a paragon of news journalism par excellence. It really was. You had hard-hitting, aggressive reporters You had really good challenges to power under the tutelage of Don Hewitt, who is no longer with us, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think he passed away the last year or two or three. And if he didn't, then I'm really sorry, but I'm fairly sure that Don Hewitt passed away. Under his his stewardship, 60 Minutes was at its zenith. You had people like Morley Safer, Harry Reasoner, Mike Wallace, Ben Bradley. Yeah, I know they're all men. You also had Leslie Stahl, who's still there. And I can't really think of any other women at the moment. But there have been other women who have joined that 60 Minutes crew. Laura Logan. Now she's kind of, you know, a more so-called controversial figure. The horrible thing that happened to her is not controversial. That happened and it was awful. But since all of that happened, she's gone on to become, I guess, somewhat a controversial figure. But that's for another day. But the point is, is that 60 Minutes back in the day, whether it's the 1960s or 70s, especially the 70s and 80s, was at its height. And now 60 Minutes is nothing more than cow dung. And this interview that I just played a clip from, and you'll hear a bit more in a moment, is precisely why. But even aside and apart from that, Nora O'Donnell, 
who got promoted to the CBS Evening News hosting, anchoring, a year or so ago, maybe more, after Jeff Glore was a disaster. Absolutely ridiculous. Lightweight reporter, just totally weak. Can't even ask Trump a question without crumbling in front of him. He went and O'Donnell got put in his place. And O'Donnell, who has had some moments of very good reporting, just is not up to this 60 Minutes thing at all. Or at least she wasn't specifically when it comes to a black woman named Kamala Harris, the senator of the state of California. Nora O'Donnell was an absolute disgrace. And Nora O'Donnell disrespected Senator Kamala Harris, a sitting United States senator. It is hard for me to imagine that she would do this with a white man or with a white woman or to a white woman. I'm going to start with that. And yes, I know 60 Minutes has these kinds of interviews. I get it. Anderson Cooper did do this to Bernie Sanders earlier this year during the primaries. And the editing is so malicious as it was in this particular exchange between this interview between Nora Nora O'Donnell and Senator Harris. And it's like that in all their interviews. I get it. The the editing's terrible. The close-ups of Senator Harris in these ill-timed moments and the edit shows a real close-up of her and then it, it's just the worst kind of editing. They're trying to go for an effect that doesn't work now, that worked earlier on in 60 Minutes higher in history, in the history of the 60 Minutes, but it doesn't work anymore because the journalists aren't as smart as they were back in the 1970s and 80s. So that when a question is being asked and the edit comes in and that edit shows you a close-up and it lingers, it's more effective than when they show this quick insert of a big face sitting in front of you and really nothing. And then a cut back to the person asking the question. The editing has got worse. The questions have got worse. The personalities have got more cult-like. And nobody cares about whether or not the story is any good. I mean, some people do. The people producing it might. But my goodness, not with the shoddy editing. But that's where I'm going to start. Listen to some of the stuff that Nora O'Donnell is asking a sitting United States senator. First of all, she starts off with this. I'm going to play this part again and then play a little bit beyond it. But Joe Biden's running mate's record is less widely known. Kamala Harris has represented California in the U.S. Senate for almost four years. You're very different in the policies that you've supported in the past. You're considered the most liberal United States senator. I, I, somebody said that, and it actually was Mike Pence on the debate stage, but... Yeah, well, actually, the nonpartisan GovTrack has rated you as the most liberal senator. You supported the Green New Deal, you supported Medicare for All, you've supported legalizing marijuana. Joe Biden doesn't support those things. So are you going to bring the policies 
those progressive policies that you supported as senator into a Biden administration? What I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that perspective and always be honest with him. This is ridiculous. That was ridiculous from Nora O'Donnell. First of all, quote Nora O'Donnell saying this to Senator Harris, you're very different. And then there's this pause, you know, that for about a second, half a second to a second, you're very different in the policies that you've, I mean, this is just so blatant. You're very different. Pause. And in my mind, that is what she's really saying is you're very different because you're a black woman. And you are this vice presidential pick. And it's you're very different. And then there's about a second of pause. And then O'Donnell adds, in the policies that you've supported in the past. You're very different in the policies that you've supported in the past. Isn't there a better sentence structure or a better way to say that? Instead of saying you're very different, you've already subliminally ascribed the, uh, the, the notification to your white viewers that, oh, you're very different. A.K.A. you're a black woman. You're considered the most liberal United States senator. And as you heard Senator Harris say, no, that's something that uh, Mike Pence said in the debate to me. <laughs> so again, you know, this is Nora O'Donnell here is using right wing Fox News talking points for an interview on CBS with a Democratic senator. Nora O'Donnell should head to Fox News. I am not someone who thinks that Democratic politicians shouldn't be challenged. In fact, I'm all for Democratic politicians being challenged by journalists. But what I am not for is for a journalist in challenging those Democratic politicians to use right-wing talking points to ask questions. There are much better and less partisan ways to question and challenge Democratic politicians on your own without having to resort to journalistic slime and lies and propaganda from the right wing to frame your question. That shows you that journalism in this country, certainly in the corporate news media, is in the tank and in the swamp. Nora O'Donnell, someone who's respected in journalistic circles in the corporate world, has to sink that low. She could not have the ingenuity to ask Senator Kamala Harris a question straight up without this BS 
you're the most liberal U.S. senator. Which is exactly what Mike Pence said at that debate. I saw that debate. I watched that debate twice. And that is one of the things he said. So she overs with it, right? She repeats it and then gets caught. And then, oh, well, some organization says you're the most. Well, screw the independent organization, the non-part. Screw them. They're wrong. I don't care that they're non-partisan. That's the problem when we have a world that's left and right in the middle. We all have these balkanized camps. Forgive me using that word camps. That we are, we're put into these boxes. You're left, you're right, I'm progressive, you're not, you're conservative, I'm not. I mean, it's just juvenile. It's juvenile. And by the way, Senator Harris is not the most liberal senator, if you must know. Bernie Sanders would be that person. And I find it astonishing, but not surprising, that... Nora O'Donnell did not do her homework. Why should I be astonished by that anyway? She didn't do her homework. And I don't know how long she spent interviewing Senator Harris because what you see on these broadcasts, as you know, is not the total amount of time they spent talking. They certainly did not talk for just three minutes or four minutes total. They were sitting there for hours Sometimes they spend two days with politicians. 60 Minutes does. Two whole days or parts of two days with them. Walking with them, talking with them, profile, this, that, the other. And then it just gets snipped down to five minutes or eight minutes or 10 minutes. And this was a real chop job interview, just like the one I talked about with Anderson Cooper and Bernie Sanders earlier this year during the primary season. This is really disgusting. And the subliminal message from O'Donnell, you're, you're very different. A, that means read, you know, listen with a third ear, folks. Black woman as VP, pick. You're very different. This is the white woman saying this now, right? You're very different. Pause. In the policies that you've supported in the past. Why didn't she just say your policies are, are ones that are different? From, you know, why couldn't she just say that? Your policies, when you ran, your policies were a little bit more different from the ones that Joe Biden represents. Instead of you're very different. That's that subliminal hook to the white viewer. Oh, yeah, because the white person watching that interview certainly didn't know that Kamala Harris was black. I mean, no, they couldn't possibly have deciphered that. Between Donald Trump calling her names. I mean, they couldn't possibly. People saying that she was born somewhere else. Why do you think she mentioned and keeps mentioning that she was born at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California? It's the same racist, lazy-ass playbook. And the Republicans use it all the time. Trump uses it all the time. Uses it all the time. And Nora O'Donnell uses it. I mean, who needs 60 Minutes when you've got Nora O'Donnell? I mean, who needs Fox News when you've got 60 Minutes? When you've got Nora O'Donnell? 
So that's the first thing is, oh, you're very different. I, AKA, listen with a third ear. You're a black woman. And you're the most liberal U.S. senator. You're considered the most U.S. liberal, the liberal, you're considered, oh my God, you know, this just makes me so, you're considered the most liberal United States senator. In other words, the subliminal message that O'Donnell is sending to white viewers in particular, but to all viewers, but particularly white viewers, black woman, liberal. Seriously. I'm telling you, that's what, that is clearly, that's what I see watching that and you listening to it. And I want you to replay this podcast episode, replay that, these clips of that interview and then watch, listen to them again and then watch because the watch of the actual video of this interview is the real tell. The expressions on the face of Nora O'Donnell when she's asking these questions. Oh, and you've supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for All. You've supported legalizing marijuana. Well, big whoop, Nora. The majority of Americans also support these things. So what are you talking about? And who are you talking to? Because it ain't the majority of America. You're talking to a right-wing echo chamber or something. Oh, you supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for All. You supported legalizing marijuana. Oh, shock horror. Oh, my God. Those are so bad. Those things are so terrible that most Americans support them as well. Most Americans support the Green New Deal. Most Americans support Medicare for All. Most Americans support legalizing marijuana. Why is that an issue, Nora O'Donnell? Say why is that an issue? But she goes on. I want you to listen to this. So are you going to bring the policies, those progressive policies that you supported as senator into a Biden administration? Oh, are you are you going to bring those progressive those progressive policies into uh 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 are you going to bring those progressive policies into a Biden administration? Ooh. Listen to that with a third ear. Are you going to be Angela Davis in the late 1960s and early 1970s and raise up with your black fist? After all, you are an Oakland gal, you know. And that's what Nora O'Donnell's doing there in that moment. Yeah, I'm cynical, but yeah, I'm also looking at the subliminal context and the subtext. And that is what happens. The insinuations, the listening with a third ear that you have to do. And you don't have to listen too hard with the third ear to know what Nora O'Donnell is doing. I mean, this stuff is really disgusting. Are you going to raise up? You know, this is, I liken this to the way that 
and she was treated much harsher than Senator Harris in some ways. I liken this to what happened in the UK, in England, particularly in England, my native country, with Meghan Markle. I mean, some of the racist attacks on her by the press, the right-wing press in England, particularly those folks at the Daily Mail, that scarlet rag, I think that, uh, I forget who, those two brothers who own that. And, you know, these other right-wing entities in the press who attacked Meghan Markle drove her out of the country. Then you have these white Englanders, some of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Meghan Markle, she's going to control Prince Harry. Oh, my God. Harry is in for a real tough time. He's in trouble. You know, the white guy is going to be corrupted by the black woman. And that's the kind of thread that is going on in this blooming interview. Oh, you know, you're the black woman liberal and, and you know, you're going to the white guy, Joe Biden's administration. Uh, are you going to bring those progressive policies before Joe Biden? Are you going to corrupt and pollute him with your blackness? Give me a, you better shut the you. This is what is going on in the subtext of that interview. And I know there are going to be some people who listen to this and say, no, come on, Omar. You just, you're just going too far, man. You're just reaching, brother. But I'm not. This is what I've seen over and over and over again from white journalists, white male and white female, but particularly white female journalists, not all of them. I never say all of anything. But I have seen this treatment over and over and over, especially when there's a black woman at the subject of the interview, as the subject of the interview. I want you to listen to this and I'm going to continue because this this thing here, listen to this next clip. What I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that perspective and always be honest with him. And is that a socialist or progressive perspective? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, it is the perspective of, of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child in America, who was also a prosecutor, who also has a mother who arrived here at the age of 19 from India, who also, you know, likes hip hop. <laughs> like, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, I want to give you, I want to give you the opportunity to address this. I'm here to declare that Nora O'Donnell is absolute trash absolute trash of this interview and I get it for some people name calling is not a thing it's a turn off and I I acknowledge that it is a turn off but you have to call things what they are and you have to call people who they are and this interview was designed to marginalize pigeonhole and trivialize the experiences of Senator Kamala Harris. 
This wasn't a get to know you interview. This was an attack. And journalism has sunk so low in the corporate news media, which is why I tell you to support, to support the black press always, to support progressive media, not this garbage that we see from Nora O'Donnell and CBS or any of these other corporate news networks. These are hit jobs. These kinds of interviews, they're not even interviews. You can't take this stuff seriously. Nora O'Donnell doesn't take Senator Harris seriously. Oh, are those going to be, are you going to bring a, a socialist? Or a progr- Is that a socialist or progressive perspective? Are you kidding me, Nora? No wonder Senator Harris laughed in your face. And rightly so. Kamala Harris, the senator out here in California, and the vice presidential pick of Joe Biden, and hopefully next week or soon thereafter, the vice president-elect handled Nora O'Donnell's ridiculous questions really very well, as you would expect her to. She's a pro at this. She's been doing interviews forever. And she's handled racist and ridiculous questions forever. She openly has talked about some of the garbage she gets from journalists. I spoke, I listened, I was there a year ago here in San Francisco when she was in San Francisco and I got to meet her. I've told you about that before. And one of the things she said in her speech when she was still running in her presidential campaign was that she got journalists and people asking her all these kinds of questions based on her being black and based on her being a woman. And especially being black. By these journalists, by other people, by commentators that that were designed to trivialize her and slight her. And marginalize her. And you've got a white woman doing that here. Oh, are you going to, are you going to, is that a, is that a socialist or progressive perspective? Are you going to bring that? I mean, this is ridiculous, Nora O'Donnell. You have failed. You have failed in your duty as a journalist to properly raise the critical questions of a politician that you should do with this garbage that you're asking. And the editors of CBS News, 60 Minutes, the editors, the producers should look at that and have decided we shouldn't put this on air because it's a blooming joke. It's a dumpster fire. How in good name Can you profess to be a journalist and you're asking a sitting U.S. senator, is that going to be a socialist or progressive perspective? Really? You totally trivialize Senator Harris's lived experience? And you heard Senator Harris say, no, as based on me being a black woman growing up, Here and having an Indian mother. And I mean, come on. 
this prism of left and right and this and it's just dehumanizing. And Nora O'Donnell completely disrespects Kamala Harris throughout this interview that was shown. Can you imagine what was left on the cutting room floor? And this is the thing. She throws these right-wing talking points. All of them. Instead of just asking straight out questions, she plays gotcha. She plays the right wing talking point and throws that at Senator Harris. Harris just swatted it away and she did well. Thank you very much. But this is the bullcrap game that gets played by these journalists in the corporate news media. And then when they've got a Republican sitting in front of them, they never say to that Republican, is that a far right perspective you're bringing? They never say that. Oh, what are you going to do? Um, you're the running mate of Donald Trump. Are you going to bring a far-right Christian conservative perspective, Mike Pence? Uh, is that what you're going to do? That question never gets asked of a Republican who is so obviously Christian right like Mike Pence is. But I'm saying in general, you will not have a Republican fielded a question like that from anybody in the corporate news media. What they will usually do is ask them questions on the substance and the policy and the factual situation. That's what you'll get. And I can't tell you, with this interview, the number of times they showed cuts and video of Donald Trump saying something. This is in the middle of the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris interview. That 60 Minutes then shows these cut, these inserts of Donald Trump talking. Oh, well, and Donald Trump says this. Oh, well, I mean, they're so biased towards Donald Trump and these Republicans. This so-called, this nonsense about, oh, this is a liberal media. Nothing could be further from the truth. These folks always genuflect to the right wing. They have forever. They book mostly Republican guests on these Sunday talk shows. You had Susan Page a couple of weeks ago doing exactly what Nora O'Donnell did two nights ago. They're both doing the same thing. Both of these white female journalists, Susan Page is a journalist. She's now the Washington bureau chief at USA Today. And she does the same exact thing, Nora O'Donnell, that Susan Page did. Marginalized Senator Harris, Allow the white guy to sit there and talk over her and not chastise him and not caution him and not interrupt him. And then have the nerve after Mike Pence in interrupts Senator Harris on that debate stage to then say, as she's trying to respond to all of that on her own time, that he's interrupted for a minute and a half, has the nerve to say to Senator Harris, well, we need to hear Mike Pence's response to this. We need to hear the vice president's response after he's the one that's already interrupted her. That's shilling for the patriarchy, if ever there was. And you do have this history of these white female journalists in the news doing this to black women that they are interviewing. These are two notable instances of it. I can point to others such as the white female Australian journalist who years back 
had interviewed Toni Morrison, a black woman in case you didn't know. I'm sure you did know. Toni Morrison, by the way, no longer with us. The Pulitzer Prize winning author, commentator, scholar, and so much more. Was asked a question by a white female journalist. Well, have you ever considered putting, and I'm paraphrasing now. You can find this on YouTube, this video. Have you ever considered putting a white perspective in your characters, a white character's perspective in your writing, in your books? It's what a white female Australian news interviewer asked of Toni Morrison several years ago. And Toni Morrison put that interviewer's backside in check. She put her ass in check. I mean, it was so clear. And Toni Morrison knew exactly what was going on in that moment, and she addressed it exactly. Toni Morrison was not a politician. So she couldn't, she wasn't going to give a political answer or deflect. She was just going to come out raw and just tell you the truth. Senator Kamala Harris told the truth too. But as a politician, she can't just directly go at Nora O'Donnell, right? And just say to her, you know, you would never ask this question of that. She can't do that because the moment she does that, you're going to have white men, some of them, and some white women kick up a fuss, call CBS, issue death threats. You're going to have media commentators, many of whom, most of whom are white, make a big noise out of this a week and a half before the election, because Sunday is a week and a half before the election, right? That two, you know, two days ago. That's almost a week and a half. That's nine days before the election. So if Kamala Harris in that interview had said anything like that, why are you asking this question? That would have been the story. That would have been the focus. We know Donald Trump walked out of his interview. Donald Trump posted that stuff online and nobody cares anymore. Chickened out of an interview with Leslie Stahl. For no good reason, by the way. There was nothing about that. Even in the 37-minute one he posted that violated the uh, agreement, nothing in it that would prompt him to leave. He's just a, he's a coward. He's afraid of women, and particularly of women who challenge him. And I didn't think, quite frankly, that Leslie Stahl was all that good in this particular interview. She's normally much stronger. I met Leslie Stahl years ago in New York. Had a very casual conversation with her while we were walking. It was at the Tribeca Film Festival. We just walking from film to film. Just happened to bump into her. Walked with her for... She had people around her. I was walking with her for a few moments, a few minutes. And had a casual conversation with her. Very nice person. Usually a great interviewer. And very good, generally speaking. Has been for years. But she wasn't quite up to her game this time. With Donald Trump. But she still was nowhere near as horrible or as terrible. She's not even terrible, Leslie Stahl. I mean, Nora O'Donnell is on a different 
universal plane. She's nowhere near. Leslie Stahl, even on Leslie Stahl's not so great days like this one interview she did a week ago today, by the way, with Donald Trump. Nora O'Donnell did exactly what a good number of white female journalists do when it comes to interviewing black women. And you can see the envy. You can see that on the face of Nora O'Donnell. The animus. It's there. I'm not making any accusations. I'm just saying what I saw. Now, you may look at that interview and see something very different. But this is inescapable and unmistakable as far as I'm concerned. There's this spite. There's this anger. The same thing I saw even mildly in that question by that Australian journalist, that white female journalist who interviewed Toni Morrison and asked her that question that I talked about earlier. The whole treatment of Meghan Markle, black woman, a member of the royal family, but really, you know, you know, both she and Harry have disentangled themselves. I mean, they even sued British tabloids, you, you know, English tabloids for the kind of scathing, biased, insulting, disrespectful coverage of Meghan Markle, a royal family member. Oh, she's black. So now, we don't see her as a member of the... We white people don't see her as a member of the royal family. I mean, that's what's going on here, folks, is the rank racism and bigotry and hate. Rank racism and misogynoir. Get all these English newspapers to attack Meghan Markle. You get the BBC call-in shows... BBC radio and calling in and you have these older white women and some older white men going off. Oh, she's going to she's going to take over Harry. She's going to turn him black. I mean, fuck, excuse my language. I'm sorry for cursing, but that is exactly where they're going. They're saying it without saying it. I really don't like to use that particular word during these podcasts. Yes, I use it on Twitter plenty at the popcorn R-E-E-L. You will see that on Twitter, that word. But in this moment, that is how I feel about this kind of garbage, this racism that is so up in your face that white people themselves can see it. I mean, this is so clear. These attacks on black women in the news media. Meghan Markle in England, the way she was treated and has been treated and is still treated by the English press, by segments of it, large segments of it. The way that Toni Morrison was questioned in that interview several years ago by this white female Australian journalist the way that Serena Williams is written about by white male and white female sports journalists and sports writers. These New York Times articles about Serena Williams, oh, she's not feminine. And you have these white female tennis players that they get 
to interview in the article. Oh, well, I would never want to be buff like that because I want to keep my femininity intact. My white femininity. That's basically what was being said in that article of of two years or so ago. Three years ago, whatever it was. And now you've got these white women who are, who are obviously paying more attention to their physique. And are lifting more weights. Give me a break. You look at, you watch tennis next time and you tell me if you haven't noticed that. But there's no article by the Times talking about, well, you know, these white women, I, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to be like that. It's what they said about black women with the Africanness of their lips. And it was all in the 1970s. Ooh, I don't want to be, I don't want to have lips that look like that. I remember this in England, for God's sake. Oh, I don't want to have lips like that. Ooh. And they were demonizing black women and their features, just like they've demonized black people and their features here and in England and in Japan and everywhere else. Now, all of a sudden, you've got white women with these inflated lips. The collagen gets injected and nobody says a damn word. You want to be like us. You want to be us. But you can't. And that's what Nora O'Donnell was tapping into two nights ago. Because the truth is, is that Nora O'Donnell, no matter how professed at journalism she is, no matter how professed and respected and liked that Nora O'Donnell is. She will never be and cannot be Senator Kamala Harris. And that eats her up inside. And the contempt is shown by O'Donnell as a result. This year's election is going to be a little different. Instead of one election day, we now have a voting season. That special time of year when polls can open weeks before election day. When your mailbox can become a voting booth. When how you vote is just as important as who you vote for. How, when, and where to cast your ballot depends on your state. Tis the season to be prepared. This year, plan your vote. Because at the Republican National Convention, President Trump made the case that Joe Biden is going to be nothing more than a Trojan horse for socialist policies, for the left wing of the Democratic Party. Are you going to push those policies when you're vice president? I am not going to be confined to Donald Trump's definition of who I or anybody else is.
Um, and I think America has learned that that would be a mistake. So just, just to button that up, because you have fought for Medicare for all. That's not something that Joe Biden supports. If you become vice president, would you say to a President Biden, you know what, Let's, we should really be pushing for Medicare for all, not a public option. That's just not gonna do it. That's not my value. I would not have joined the ticket if I didn't support what Joe was proposing. And so our plan includes expanding on everything that Joe together with President Obama created with the Affordable Care Act. By contrast, you have Donald Trump, who's in court right now, trying to get rid of a policy that brought health care to over 20 million people, including protecting people with pre-existing conditions. And he's doing it in the middle of a pandemic that has killed over 215,000 Americans. There are journalists out there who should be interviewing Kamala Harris as the senator of this state of California. And I think that black journalists who work at these corporate networks must be given the access, more access than they may already have to interview Senator Harris. And I think that if you had a great interviewer and reporter and anchor like Lindsay Davis of ABC, now I grant you, obviously, ABC is not CBS and 60 Minutes is not on ABC. But Lindsay Davis is a more than capable interviewer and reporter. She's interviewed Senator Harris on a number of occasions. I watched them, one of the most recent ones just a week or two ago on abcnews.com. And Lindsay Davis was the moderator or one moderator at a debate earlier this year during the Democratic primary. And she asked a question of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And that question was really about, you know, your record in uh, South Bend, Indiana, as the mayor of that town, when it comes to the police and, and the police brutality there, it was shocking. I'm paraphrasing. It's shocking. You didn't do anything. And black people were being targeted and killed by police and you weren't doing. And it's true. Pete Buttigieg, who is now a really good advocate for Joe Biden, did not do anything largely during his term as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He didn't. Just ask the black people in South Bend what they think of Mayor Pete. And so Lindsay Davis at this debate, and I remember it clearly now, it was on a Friday. I believe it was either January, February, or March of this year. I believe it was more like January, perhaps. A Friday in January or May uh, or February. I'd say January of this year. And she asked the question and Pete Buttigieg was stammering around and which means that when you are someone who doesn't naturally stammer or stutter, when you start to do that and you're trying to respond to a question, that means you're lying. I mean, you are lying, especially if, again, if you're not someone that stutters and someone asks you a question and then all of a sudden you're stuttering away and you're stammering and you're this and you're that. That's a sign of someone lying. Mark Meadows did that the other day during State of the Union with Jake Tapper. Tapper asked him something and then Meadows said something. Oh, your article on CNN. Oh, 
uh, uh, it's on C C and he couldn't get the words out. CNB C C. The guy was lying. I've not seen any article that he was referring to in the context of that interview, but that's a whole nother story. People who stutter are gen are generally very quick and sharp. It's just that their brain is ahead of their mouth, or is it vice versa? The mouth is ahead of the brain. I don't remember. The brain is ahead of the mouth. Something like that. But the point I'm making is that Pete Buttigieg didn't know how to answer. He was terrible. And you can find the clip on YouTube. I had it on Twitter once back in January. I quite frankly don't want to just go and search for it at the moment. Really, because I don't want to do that. I just don't want to. I just want to make the point that people like Lindsay Davis, black woman, very able, does an excellent job, would be a much better choice than Nora O'Donnell. Heck, and I don't even think that Gail King is that good an interviewer. But I think Gail King would have been far better than Nora O'Donnell doing that interview of Senator Harris. And the fin- the interesting thing is both Nora O'Donnell and Gail King did a moderation of a debate. They moderated the debate earlier this year and they were disastrous. <laughs> I mean, both of them were horrible. They were awful. But they moderated the debate this year between Democratic candidates in the primary and they both did it together. They were terrible. They were really bad. So I guess my example of uh, Gail King, not so good. I think her good friend Oprah, however, would have been an excellent choice. Oprah works for 60 Minutes. She's done great stories for them before. The story she did in 2017 or 2018 about the Equal Justice Initiative or the Equal Justice Institute, rather, headed by Brian Stevenson. And the museum down there in Montgomery, Alabama, that was dedicated to all the black people who had been lynched in the thousands, by the thousands. There's a memorial to them at that museum that was built within the last two years. And that report was really good. Really good. Oprah talking to Brian Stevenson and you got a whole idea of what all of that was about that story and the earnestness and the seriousness that it required. Oprah Winfrey would have done an excellent job interviewing Senator Harris. And there's no way in my mind and no way on earth that you would have had Oprah asking about, well, uh, um, are you bringing a socialist or progressive perspective? That would not have come from Oprah's mouth. I guarantee you. We need to support the black press. That's the bottom line of my point here. We need more black female journalists to be doing these interviews in the corporate news media because there's plenty out there. Kristen Welker showing you how great a reporter she is. She's a good interviewer. She was excellent at the debate last week, moderating it much better than either Chris Wallace or Susan Page separately or combined and gets half the credit in this racist country that we're in. Racist country that we're in. If Su- if Kristen Welker was a white 
woman and Susan Page were a black woman. Oh, my God. After those debate performances, the contrast. One of them wouldn't have their job anymore. I mean, can we just be real? Kristen Welker got some credit from some, but she didn't get the kind of universe, this heavy acclaim. She didn't. Susan Page, however, oh, Susan, you did a great job, says Poppy Harlow of CNN. Oh, you did. And then she's all over the TV. You know, Susan Page. Oh, she's on MSNBC now. Susan Page. Oh, she's on CNN now. Oh, welcome back, Susan Page. She's on Brian Williams' 11th hour show. Yet again. Oh, and let's go to our regular three people. There's Susan Page. Slide her ass right in. Never mind that she effed up the debate and treated the black woman like a stooge. Oh, never mind that. Oh, we slide her backside right in there like she didn't F up that debate that she moderated. That's the club. That's the system. That's the network. And we need to, again, be real about that. And we also need to support the black press. That is job one. Support the black press. Support the black press. I mean, end of story. Support black press. You've got Roland Martin. You've got Joe Madison, the Black Eagle on Sirius XM. Roland Martin, I've told you about many times. He has a show called Roland Martin Unfiltered. On Twitter, he's at Roland S. Martin. You really should be looking into watching that show every day. 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Monday through Friday on Twitter, Facebook, and Periscope, I believe. And yeah, Periscope and Instagram and everywhere. I mean, come on. There's others too that I can't name at the moment. But please, support the black press. You're getting news from Joe Madison and Roland Martin and Karen Hunter and... You know, Clay Kane and all these other people that you never get anywhere else. And you get good interviews. And you get to hear from people you've never heard from if you watch CNN or MSNBC and certainly not Fox. You wouldn't get any of that on Fox. But this is what I'm saying to you. And that's what has to happen. By the way, one last thing. If you still have not voted and you have an absentee ballot, then you have to fill that absentee ballot out. Follow the rules of your state. Make sure that you properly sign and address the ballot if it requires that. And that you go to a ballot drop-off box. Or even better than that, to your local county board of elections office and hand deliver that ballot to them. Find out which county you live in in your state and then go and search for the county board of elections in that county. Or it might be called the municipal clerk's office or it might be called something else. 
I have a voter guide at the popcorn R-E-E-L on Twitter that will enable you to find your county's Board of Elections office. There are just seven more voting days remaining here in this election. And I guarantee you, with Louis DeJoy slowing down the post office like this and the mail, you do not want to be putting anything in the U.S. mail when it comes to your ballot. You need to be hand-delivering that in person or you need to drop it off at an official drop box. Repeat, if you still have your ballot with you right now, you need to fill it out right away and drop it off at an official drop box location. Or you need to make sure that you drive or go directly to your local county board of elections office and hand deliver it to somebody there. Because sending it in the mail now, too risky, too soon, not worth losing your vote over. And this is the time now that you need to be persuading others to get out and vote. That final push must be made because it is everything. It's going to be the difference between a landslide and a nail biter. It's going to be the difference between a significant win for Joe Biden and a protracted fight in the courts by Donald Trump. We cannot afford to get to where we were 20 years ago or where we were four years ago. So as we tick past 67 million people, as of the time of this recording, make sure that you go out and vote if you haven't already and make sure you phone back and get the vote out, please. Seven more days. Leave nothing to chance. Ignore the polls and get to work. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. I wanted to feel free not to have the white gaze in this place that was so precious to me, which is the work. And you will maintain this safe place for yourself, for your art? You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have done. Mm. In, In a substantial paradise. way. You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. And saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. Oh, no, I, that, that wasn't the implication of my question. I think you are very, very much in the mainstream. It's a question of the, the subject of your narrative, whether you want to alter the parameters of it, whether you see any, um, 
any benefit in doing that or will you clearly see disadvantages in doing it from your own point of view? Artistic disadvantages. There are no pluses for me. Being an African-American writer is sort of like being a Russian writer who writes about Russia in Russian for Russians. And the fact that it gets translated and read by other people is a benefit. It's a plus. But he's not obliged to ever consider writing about French people or Americans or anybody. 